This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Little Lame Prince by Miss Mullock. Chapter 2 Everybody was very kind to the poor little prince. I think people generally are kind to motherless children, whether princes or peasants. He had a magnificent nursery and a regular suite of attendants, and was treated with the greatest respect and state. Nobody was allowed to talk to him in silly baby language, or dandle him, or, above all, kiss him, though perhaps some people did it surreptitiously, for he was such a sweet baby that it was difficult to help it. It could not be said that the prince missed his mother. Children of his age cannot do that. But somehow, after she died, everything seemed to go wrong with him. From a beautiful baby he became sickly and pale, seeming to have almost ceased growing, especially in his legs, which had been so fat and strong. But after the day of his christening they withered and shrank. He no longer kicked them out in passion or play, and when, as he got to be nearly a year old, his nurse tried to make him stand upon them, he only tumbled down. This happened so many times that at last people began to talk about it. A prince, and not able to stand on his own legs! What a dreadful thing! What a misfortune for the country! Rather a misfortune to him also, poor little boy. But nobody seemed to think of that. And when, after a while, his health revived, and the old bright look came back to his sweet little face, and his body grew larger and stronger, though still his legs remained the same, people continued to speak of him in whispers and with grave shakes of the head. Everybody knew, though nobody said it, that something, it was impossible to guess what, was not quite right with the poor little prince. Of course, nobody hinted this to the king his father. It does not do to tell great people anything unpleasant. And besides, his majesty took very little notice of his son, or of his other affairs, beyond the necessary duties of his kingdom. People had said he would not miss the queen at all, she having been so long an invalid, but he did. After her death he never was quite the same. He established himself in her empty rooms, the only rooms in the palace whence one could see the beautiful mountains, and was often observed looking at them as if he thought she had flown away thither, and that his longing could bring her back again. And by a curious coincidence, which nobody dared inquire into, he desired that the prince might be called not by any of the four-and-twenty grand names given him by his godfathers and godmothers, but by the identical name mentioned by the little old woman in grey, Dolor, after his mother, Dolores. Once a week, according to the established state custom, the prince, dressed in his very best, was brought to the king his father for half an hour, but his majesty was generally too ill and too melancholy to pay much heed to the child. Only once, when he and the crown prince, who was exceedingly attentive to his royal brother, were sitting together with the Prince Dolor playing in a corner of the room, dragging himself about with his arms rather than his legs, and sometimes trying feebly to crawl from one chair to another. It seemed to strike the father that all was not right with his son. "'How old is his royal highness?' said he suddenly to the nurse. Two years, three months, and five days, please your majesty.' "'It does not please me,' said the king with a sigh. "'He ought to be far more forward than he is now, ought he not, brother? "'You, who have so many children, must know. "'Is there something wrong about him?' "'Er, uh, no,' said the crown prince, 
exchanging meaning looks with the nurse, who did not understand at all, but stood frightened and trembling with the tears in her eyes. "'Nothing to make your majesty at all uneasy. No doubt his royal highness will outgrow it in time.' "'Outgrow what?' "'A slight delicacy <clears throat> in the spine, something inherited, perhaps, from his dear mother.' "'Ah, she always was delicate.' "'but she was the sweetest woman that ever lived. "'Come here, my little son.' "'And as the prince turned round upon his father "'a small, sweet, grave face, so like his mother's, "'His Majesty the King smiled and held out his arms. "'But when the boy came to him, "'not running like a boy, but wriggling awkwardly along the floor, "'the royal countenance clouded over. "'I ought to have been told of this. "'It is terrible, terrible!' "'and for a prince, too. "'Send for all the doctors in my kingdom immediately.' "'They came, and each gave a different opinion "'and ordered a different mode of treatment. "'The only thing they agreed in was what had been pretty well known before, "'that the prince must have been hurt when he was an infant, "'let fall, perhaps, so as to injure his spine and lower limbs. "'Did nobody remember?' "'No, nobody.' Indignantly all the nurses denied that any such accident had happened, was possible to have happened, until the faithful country nurse recollected that it really had happened on the day of the christening, for which unluckily good memory all the others scolded her so severely that she had no peace of her life, and soon after, by the influence of the young lady nurse who had carried the baby that fatal day, and who was a sort of connection of the crown prince, being his wife's second cousin once removed, the poor woman was pensioned off and sent to the beautiful mountains from whence she came, with orders to remain there for the rest of her days. But of all this the king knew nothing, for indeed, after the first shock of finding out that his son could not walk, and seemed never likely to, he interfered very little concerning him. The whole thing was too painful, and his majesty never liked painful things. Sometimes he inquired after Prince Dolor, and they told him his royal highness was going on as well as could be expected which really was the case. For, after worrying the poor child, and perplexing themselves with one remedy after another, the crown prince, not wishing to offend any of the differing doctors, had proposed leaving him to nature. And nature, the safest doctor of all, had come to his help and done her best. He could not walk, it is true. His limbs were mere useless appendages to his body. But the body itself was strong and sound. And his face was the same as ever, just his mother's face, one of the sweetest in the world. Even the king, indifferent as he was, sometimes looked at the little fellow with sad tenderness, noticing how cleverly he learned to crawl and swing himself about by his arms, so that in his own awkward way he was as active in motion as most children of his age. Poor little man! He does his best, and he is not unhappy, not half so unhappy as I, brother, addressing the crown prince, who was more constant than ever in his attendance upon the sick monarch. "'If anything should befall me, I have appointed you regent. In case of my death, you will take care of my poor little boy?' "'Certainly, certainly. But do not let us imagine any such misfortune. I assure your majesty, everybody will assure you, that it is not in the least likely.' He knew, however, and everybody knew, that it was likely, and soon after it actually did happen. The king died as suddenly and quietly as the queen had done, indeed in her very room and bed, 
and Prince Dolor was left without father or mother, as sad a thing as could happen, even to a prince. He was more than that now, though. He was a king. In no man's land, as in other countries, people were struck with grief one day and revived the next. The king is dead! Long live the king! was the cry that rang through the nation. And almost before his late majesty had been laid beside the queen in their splendid mausoleum, crowds came thronging from all parts to the royal palace, eager to see the new monarch. They did see him. The prince regent took care they should, sitting on the floor of the council chamber, sucking his thumb. And when one of the gentlemen in waiting lifted him up and carried him, fancy carrying a king to the chair of state and put the crown on his head, he shook it off again. It was so heavy and uncomfortable. Sliding down to the foot of the throne, he began playing with the golden lions that supported it, stroking their paws and putting his tiny fingers into their eyes and laughing, laughing as if he had at last found something to amuse him. "'There's a fine king for you,' said the first lord-in-waiting, a friend of the prince regents, the crown prince that used to be, who, in the deepest mourning, stood silently beside the throne of his young nephew. He was a handsome man, very grand and clever-looking. "'What a king! Who can never stand to receive his subjects! Never walk in processions! Who to the last day of his life will have to be carried about like a baby! Very unfortunate!' "'Exceedingly unfortunate,' repeated the second lord. "'It is always bad for a nation when its king is a child. But such a child! A permanent cripple, if not worse!' "'Let us hope not worse,' said the First Lord, in a very hopeless tone, and looking toward the Regent, who stood erect and pretended to hear nothing. "'I have heard that these sort of children, with very large heads, and great broad foreheads, and staring eyes, are—well, well, let us hope for the best, and be prepared for the worst. In the meantime—'I swear,' said the Crown Prince, coming forward and kissing the hilt of his sword. I swear to perform my duties as regent, to take all care of his royal highness, his, his majesty, I mean, with a grand bow to the little child who laughed innocently back again. And I will do my humble best to govern the country. Still, if the country has the slightest objection. But the crown prince, being generalissimo, having the whole army at his beck and call, so that he could have begun a civil war in no time, the country had, of course, not the slightest objection. So the king and queen slept together in peace, and Prince Dolor reigned over the land, that is, his uncle did, and everybody said what a fortunate thing it was for the little prince to have such a clever uncle to take care of him. All things went on as usual. Indeed, after the regent had brought his wife and her seven sons, and established them in the palace, rather better than usual for they gave such splendid entertainments and made the capital so lively that trade revived and the country was said to be more flourishing than it had been for a century whenever the regent and his sons appeared they were received with shouts long live the crown prince long live the royal family and in truth they were very fine children the whole seven of them and made a great show when they rode out together on seven beautiful horses one height above another, down to the youngest, on his tiny black pony no bigger than a large dog. As for the other child, his royal highness Prince Dolor, for somehow people soon ceased to call him his majesty, which seemed such a ridiculous title 
for a poor little fellow, a helpless cripple, with only a head and trunk and no legs to speak of. He was very seldom seen by anybody. Sometimes people daring enough to peer over the high wall of the palace garden noticed there, carried in a footman's arms, or drawn in a chair, or left to play on the grass, often with nobody to mind him, a pretty little boy, with a bright, intelligent face and large, melancholy eyes. No, not exactly melancholy, for they were his mother's, and she was by no means sad-minded, but thoughtful and dreamy. They rather perplexed people, those childish eyes. They were so exceedingly innocent, and yet so penetrating. If anybody did a wrong thing, told a lie, for instance, they would turn round with such a grave, silent surprise—the child never talked much—that every naughty person in the palace was rather afraid of Prince Dolor. He could not help it, and perhaps he did not even know it, being no better a child than many other children. But there was something about him which made bad people sorry, and grumbling people ashamed of themselves, and ill-natured people gentle and kind. I suppose because they were touched to see a poor little fellow who did not in the least know what had befallen him, or what lay before him, living his baby life as happy as the day is long. Thus, whether or not he was good himself, the sight of him and his affliction made other people good, and above all made everybody love him. So much so that his uncle the regent began to feel a little uncomfortable. Now I have nothing to say against uncles in general. They are usually very excellent people, and very convenient to little boys and girls. Even the cruel uncle of the babes in the woods I believe to be quite an exceptional character, and this cruel uncle of whom I am telling was, I hope, an exception too. He did not mean to be cruel. If anybody had called him so he would have resented it extremely. He would have said that what he did was done entirely for the good of the country. But he was a man who had always been accustomed to consider himself first and foremost. believing that whatever he wanted was sure to be right, and therefore he ought to have it. So he tried to get it, and got it too, as people like him very often do. Whether they enjoy it when they have it is another question. Therefore he went one day to the council chamber, determined on making a speech, and informing the ministers and the country at large that the young king was in failing health, and that it would be advisable to send him for a time to the beautiful mountains. Whether he really meant to do this, or whether it occurred to him afterward that there would be an easier way of attaining his great desire, the crown of no man's land, is a point which I cannot decide. But soon after, when he had obtained an order in council to send the king away, which was done in great state, with a guard of honor composed of two whole regiments of soldiers, the nation learned, without much surprise, that the poor little prince—nobody ever called him king now— had gone a much longer journey than to the beautiful mountains. He had fallen ill on the road, and died within a few hours. At least so declared the physician in attendance, and the nurse who had been sent to take care of him. They brought his coffin back in great state, and buried it in the mausoleum with his parents. So Prince Dolor was seen no more. The country went into deep mourning for him, and then forgot him, and his uncle reigned in his stead. That illustrious personage accepted his crown with great decorum, and wore it with great dignity to the last. But whether he enjoyed it or not, there is no evidence to show. End of chapter 2